part one of henry james at work this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. recording by david wales henry james at work by theodora bosanquet part one one i knew nothing of henry james beyond the revelation of his novels and tales before the summer of nineteen o seven then as i sat in a top-floor office near whitehall one august morning compiling a very full index to the report of the royal commission on coast erosion my ears were struck by the astonishing sound of passages from the ambassadors being dictated to a young typist neglecting my blue book i turned round to watch the operator ticking off sentences which seemed to be at least as much of a surprise to her as they were to me when my bewilderment had broken into a question i learnt that henry james was on the point of coming back from italy that he had asked to be provided with an amanuensis and that the lady at the typewriter was making acquaintance with his style without any hopeful design of supplanting her i lodged an immediate petition that i might be allowed the next opportunity of filling the post supposing she should ever abandon it i was told to my amazement that i need not wait the established candidate was not enthusiastic about the prospect before her was even genuinely relieved to look in another direction if i set about practising typewriting on a remington machine at once i could be interviewed by henry james as soon as he arrived in london within an hour i had begun work on the typewriter by the time he was ready to interview me i could tap out paragraphs of the ambassadors at quite a fair speed he asked no questions at that interview about my speed on a typewriter or about anything else the friend to whom he had applied for an amanuensis had told him that i was sufficiently the right young woman for his purpose and he relied on her word he had at the best little hope of any young woman beyond docility we sat in armchairs on either side of a fireless grate while we observed each other i suppose he found me harmless and i know that i found him overwhelming he was much more massive than i had expected much broader and stouter and stronger i remembered that someone had told me he used to be taken for a sea captain when he wore a beard but it was clear that now with the beard shaved away he would hardly have passed for say an admiral in spite of the keen grey eyes set in a face burned to a colourable seafaring brown by the italian sun no successful naval officer could have afforded to keep that sensitive mobile mouth after the interview i wondered what kind of impression one might have gained from a chance encounter in some such observation cell as a railway carriage would it have been possible to fit him confidently into any single category he had reacted with so much success against both the american accent and the english manner that he seemed only doubtfully anglo-saxon he might perhaps have been some species of disguised cardinal or even a roman nobleman amusing himself by playing the part of a sussex squire the observer could at least have guessed that any part he chose to assume would be finely conceived and generously played for his features were all cast in the classical mode of greatness 
he might very well have been a merciful caesar or a benevolent napoleon and a painter who worked at his portrait a year or two later was excusably reminded of so many illustrious makers of history that he declared it to be a hard task to isolate the individual character of the model if the interview was overwhelming it had none of the usual awkwardness of such curious conversations instead of critical angles and disconcerting silences there were only benign curves and ample reassurances there was encouraging gaiety in an expanse of bright check waistcoat he invited me to ask any questions i liked but i had none to ask i wanted nothing but to be allowed to go to rye and work his typewriter he was prepared however with his statements and once i was seated opposite to him the strong slow stream of his deliberate speech played over me without ceasing he had it on his mind to tell me the conditions of life and labor at rye and he unburdened himself fully with numberless amplifications and qualifications but without any real break it would be a dull business he warned me and i should probably find rye a dull place he told me of rooms in mermaid street very simple rustic and antique but that is the case for everything near my house and this particular little old house is very near mine and i know the good woman for kind and worthy and a convenient cook and in short it was settled at once that i should take the rooms that i should begin my duties in october two since winter was approaching henry james had begun to use a panelled green-painted room on the upper floor of lamb house for his work it was known simply as the green room it had many advantages as a winter workroom for it was small enough to be easily warmed and a wide south window caught all the morning sunshine the window overhung the smooth green lawn shaded in summer by a mulberry tree surrounded by roses and enclosed behind a tall bride wall it never failed to give the owner pleasure to look out of this window at his charming english garden where he could watch his english gardener digging the flower beds or mowing the lawn or sweeping up fallen leaves there was another window for the afternoon sun looking towards winchelsea and doubly glazed against the force of the westerly gales three high bookcases two big writing-desks and an easy-chair filled most of the space in the green room but left enough dear floor for a restricted amount of the pacing exercise that was indispensable to literary composition on summer days henry james liked better to work in the large garden-room which gave him a longer stretch for perambulation and a window overlooking the cobbled street that curved up the hill past his door he liked to be able to relieve the tension of a difficult sentence by a glance down the street he enjoyed hailing a passing friend or watching a motor-car pant up the sharp little slope the sight of one of these vehicles could be counted on to draw from him a vigorous outburst of amazement admiration or horror for the complications of an age that produced such efficient monsters for gobbling protective distance the business of acting as a medium between the spoken and the typewritten word was at first as alarming as it was fascinating 
the most handsome and expensive typewriters exercise as vicious an influence as any other over the spelling of the operator and the new pattern of a remington machine which i found installed offered a few additional problems but henry james's patience during my struggles with that baffling mechanism was unfailing he watched me helplessly for he was one of the few men without the smallest pretension to the understanding of a machine and he was as easy to spell from as an open dictionary the experience of years had evidently taught him that it was not safe to leave any word of more than one syllable to luck he took pains to pronounce every pronounceable letter he always spelt out words which the ear might confuse with others and he never left a single punctuation mark unuttered except sometimes that necessary point the full stop occasionally in a low aside he would interject a few words for the enlightenment of the amanuensis adding for instance after spelling out the newcomes that the words were the title of a novel by one thackeray the practice of dictation was begun in the nineties by nineteen o seven it was a confirmed habit its effects being easily recognizable in his style which became more and more like free involved unanswered talk i know he once said to me that i'm too diffuse when i'm dictating but he found dictation not only an easier but a more inspiring method of composing than writing with his own hand and he considered that the gain in expression more than compensated for any loss of concision the spelling out of the words the indication of commas were scarcely felt as a drag on the movement of his thought it all seems he once explained to be so much more effectively and unceasingly pulled out of me in speech than in writing indeed at the time when i began to work for him he had reached a stage at which the click of a remington machine acted as a positive spur he found it more difficult to compose to the music of any other make during a fortnight when the remington was out of order he dictated to an oliver typewriter with evident discomfort and he found it almost impossibly disconcerting to speak to something that made no responsive sound at all once or twice when he was ill and in bed i took down a note or two by hand but as a rule he liked to have the typewriter moved into his bedroom for even the shortest letters yet there were to the end certain kinds of work which he was obliged to do with a pen plays if they were to be kept within the limits of possible performance and short stories if they were to remain within the bounds of publication in a monthly magazine must be written by hand he was well aware that the manual labor of writing was his best aid to a desired brevity the plays such a play as the outcry for instance were copied straight from his manuscript since he was much too afraid of the murderous limits of the english theatre to risk the temptation of dictation and embroidery with the short stories he allowed himself a little more freedom dictating them from his written draft and expanding them as he went to an extent which inevitably defeated his original purpose 
it is almost literally true to say of the sheaf of tales collected in the finer grain that they were all written in response to a single request for a short story for harper's monthly magazine the length was to be about five thousand words and each promising idea was cultivated in the optimistic belief that it would produce a flower too frail and small to demand any exhaustive treatment but even under pressure of being written by hand with dictated interpolations rigidly restricted each in turn pushed out to lengths that no chopping could reduce to the word limit the tale eventually printed was crepey cornelia but although it was the shortest of the batch it was thought too long to be published in one number and appeared in two sections to the great annoyance of the author three the method adopted for full-length novels was very different with a clear run of a hundred thousand words or more before him henry james always cherished the delusive expectation of being able to fit his theme quite easily between the covers of a volume it was not until he was more than halfway through that the problem of space began to be embarrassing at the beginning he had no questions of compression to attend to and he broke ground as he said by talking to himself day by day about the characters and construction until the persons and their actions were vividly present to his inward eye this soliloquy was of course recorded on the typewriter he had from far back tended to dramatize all the material that life gave him and he more and more prefigured his novels as staged performances arranged in acts and scenes with the characters making their observed entrances and exits these scenes he worked out until he felt himself so thoroughly possessed of the action that he could begin on the dictation of the book itself a process which has been incorrectly described by one critic as redictation from a rough draft it was nothing of the kind owners of the volumes containing the ivory tower or the sense of the past have only to turn to the notes printed at the end to see that the scenario dictated in advance contains practically none of the phrases used in the final work the two sets of notes are a different and a much more interesting literary record than a mere draft they are the framework set up for imagination to clothe with the spun web of life but they are not bare framework they are elaborate and abundant they are the kind of exercise described in the death of the lion as a great gossiping eloquent letter the overflow into talk of an artist's amorous design but the design was thus mapped out with the clear understanding that at a later stage and at closer quarters the subject might grow away from the plan in the intimacy of composition pre-noted proportions and arrangements do most uncommonly insist on making themselves different by shifts and variations always improving which impose themselves as one goes and keep the door open always to something more right and more related it is subject to that constant possibility all the while that one does pre-note and tentatively sketch the preliminary sketch was seldom consulted after the novel began to take permanent shape but the same method of talking out was resorted to at difficult points of the narrative as it progressed 
always for the sake of testing in advance the values of the persons involved in a given situation so that their creator should ensure their right action both for the development of the drama and the truth of their relations to each other the knowledge of all the conscious motives and concealments of his creatures gained by unwearied observation of their attitudes behind the scenes enabled henry james to exhibit them with a final confidence that dispensed with explanations among certain stumbling-blocks in the path of the perfect comprehension of his readers is their uneasy doubt of the sincerity of the conversational encounters recorded most novelists provide some clue to help their readers to distinguish truth from falsehood and in the theatre although husbands and wives may be deceived by lies the audience is usually privy to the plot but a study of the notes to the ivory tower will make it clear that between the people created by henry james lying is as frequent as among mortals and not any easier to detect for the volumes of memories a small boy and others notes of a son and brother and the uncompleted middle years no preliminary work was needed a straight dive into the past brought to the surface treasure after treasure a wealth of material which became embarrassing the earlier book was begun in nineteen eleven after henry james had returned from a year in the united states where he had been called by his brother's fatal illness he had come back after many seasons of country solitude to his former love of the friendly london winter and for the first few months after his return from america he lodged near the reform club and came to the old house in chelsea where i was living and where he had taken a room for his work it was a quiet room long and narrow and rather dark he used to speak of it as my chelsea cellar there he settled down to write what as he outlined it to me was to be a set of notes to his brother william's early letters prefaced by a brief account of the family into which they were both born but an entire volume of memories was finished before bringing william to an age for writing letters and a small boy came to a rather abrupt end as a result of the writer's sudden decision that a break must be made at once if the flood of remembrance was not to drown his pious intention it was extraordinarily easy for him to recover the past he had always been sensitive to impressions and his mind was stored with records of exposure all he had to do was to render his sense of those records as adequately as he could each morning after reading over the pages written the day before he would settle down in a chair for an hour or so of conscious effort then lifted on a rising tide of inspiration he would get up and pace up and down the room sounding out the periods in tones of resonant assurance at such times he was beyond reach of irrelevant sounds or sights hosts of cats a tribe he usually routed with shouts of execration might wail outside the window phalanxes of motor-cars bearing dreaded visitors might hoot at the door he heard nothing of them the only thing that could arrest his progress was the escape of the word he wanted to use 
when that had vanished he broke off the rhythmic pacing and made his way to a chimney-piece or bookcase tall enough to support his elbows while he rested his head in his hands and audibly pursued the fugitive end of part one